All right. Welcome to Salt. So glad you guys are here. Uh, if you guys don't know me, my name is David. I'm the lead pastor over at Treeline Church. Salt Company is part of Treeline. This is our college ministry. I get to teach here every once in a while. Um, so I haven't met you. Hey, so glad to, to meet you. And yeah, some of you, it's like your first night ever at Salt. And it's like you come in and then everybody is just like giving you this whole list of like, these are all the fun things we're doing this weekend without you. But you can sign up and you really should because uh, I've done fall retreats where someone came the Thursday like before and they're like, well, this is this weekend. And I've had people who come on Thursday for the very first time at Salt decide what the heck, I'll just wing it. I'll go on this thing go on the fall retreat, and it's like changes their life. They're just like, these are all my friends. It's awesome. Like, so just if you're here for the first time, don't think you can't come because you can. And when you are 90 years old sitting on your deathbed, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> You'll be like, I went to the fall retreat. Here's the thing, though. Honestly, you only get four of these, all right? You only get four, maybe five, if you're like, you know, you do too many fall retreats and, you know, fall behind or whatever. But I'm just kidding. You're not going to fall behind. Like, Jesus, I, I don't promise this, but I feel very confident if you come, Jesus will help you on your classes. I'm just saying. I think, I think he will. I think he will. He might not give you, like, quite the grade you want, but he'll give you one that will, like, get you where you want to go, right? Okay. Um, I am excited and actually, like, really honored to be here tonight. Uh, we're in this serious conversations with Jesus, and tonight is the last kind of... Uh, talk in this series, and it's the, the conversation that Jesus wants to have with us where he isn't speaking with his mouth, his words. It's actually the night when Jesus is silent because we're talking about the cross tonight. And the moment when Jesus actually speaks the loudest and the clearest to us is actually in these moments when he no longer has breath in his lungs and he's being laid in the ground, there's something profound and there's something that God is like screaming at us in this moment that we need to hear. And so that's where we're going tonight. And the end of the story of the Bible, I don't know if you are familiar with the Bible or you've ever read the end, but the end of the story of the Bible, it says that how this whole story of humanity ends is it basically gets wrapped up and the people who are followers of Jesus, we get kind of brought into this new chapter of the story. This really like the first chapter of the real story. And it says that the new heavens and new earth, like everything is oriented around this one person who it says looks like a lamb that was slain. And the whole story of the Bible ends by saying this being, this man, Jesus, he has scars on his literal resurrected body for eternity that aren't scars that are like, oh, that's too bad that happened, but actually they're the very things that give him the name that's above every name and that gives him this kind of glory. And we're going to see this man face to face one day. And I want to tell you the story of how he got those scars. Is that cool? So tonight we're, we are talking about the cross and um, we're talking about crucifixion. And so there's going to be a couple points in this sermon. We're just going to lay it out there and talk about it pretty honestly. And so there might be some moments that feel kind of graphic to you because crucifixion is a graphic thing. And so this is just like a little bit of a trigger warning. Um, I'm not going to give one throughout the sermon. I'm just going to kind of go for it, but just kind of know that we're talking about some heavy stuff tonight. So tonight, Jesus wants to speak to us, not with his voice, but with his crucified body. And I really do think it's when Jesus' lungs finally depress and he breathes his last 
It's in the silence and the stillness of the last breath of the man on the cross that we hear him speak the loudest and the clearest. And I also think that it's in this moment where Jesus is silent that we actually are standing in like the crossroads of reality. And the cross of Jesus isn't something we're just supposed to look at and know. We're actually meant to respond to it. And so we're going to get to the cross, but I want to start in John 18. So if you got a Bible, go there. I want you to see this moment that happens. This is kind of, you know, a chapter before the crucifixion. But I want you to see this. This is John 18, starting in verse 1. I think it's going to be on the screens. Okay. I'll give you a second to get there. All right, that's too long. Okay, I'm going to keep going. Okay. Uh, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now, Judas, who had betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now, when Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who who betrayed him, was standing with them. Now, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Just kind of a quick moment in passing, but there's just something happening here that's profound. It's like in this moment, we need to see something. This is not a man who is having his life taken from him. Like when he says this word, like who, who do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am he. We've talked about this assault, but he doesn't actually say I am he. It's like a weird translation. He literally just says, ego, I'm me. In the Greek, he says, I am. He's like speaking this like this name of God. And it's like when Jesus says, I am, it's such a powerful moment that these people who are coming here to arrest him somehow like fall on their face in worship. Like, so it's just like a crazy scene. Like they're there with weapons. They drop the weapons and all of a sudden they're like on the ground before him. And even though they don't believe in him, their bodies still respond by falling on the ground before Jesus. And I just want to stop for a moment and just show us this. It's like in this moment of the story, this is as though God is saying, look, even though I'm going to the cross as a lamb, make no mistake, I am a lion. And even though I'm going to be led to the slaughter and I'm going to be given a crown of thorns and my throne will be a cross, there is a day coming where God the Father is going to bestow on me the name above all names so that at my name, every knee will bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth, so that at the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so this is kind of just profound moment, right? They pick themselves up off the ground. Look at verse seven. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? It's almost this like funny moment, right? Jesus is like, okay, no, get up, get up. Who are you looking for again? Who are you looking for? And they're like, Jesus of Nazareth. Like they're probably saying it more sheepishly in this moment. And Jesus answered them, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Now this was to fill the word that had been spoken of those whom you gave me. I lost not one of them, right? In this moment, Jesus kind of protecting his people. He's like, hey, just you want me, not them. Let them go. You really came for me, right? So he's kind of protecting his own people. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. 
So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Look what Jesus says. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? There's a bunch of things we could stop and look at here, but just notice this is willful. This is according to plan. And from this moment on, we're going to see Jesus give himself into the hands of these people. They'll hold a false trial over him. They'll, they'll mock and they'll spit on him. They'll, they'll hit him in the face. They will beat him. But eventually they're going to get to a point where they can't go any further. Like they've bruised, they've humiliated him, but they don't have the authority because they're under Roman rule. So they don't have any more like jurisdiction to do anything worse to him. So they take him to the Romans and eventually they drag him in front of a man you might know the name of, Pontius Pilate. You guys know that familiar? This is kind of the, the ruling person kind of on the side of Rome over this area. And this is verse 33. It says, so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others tell you this about me? Pilate answered, am I, am I a Jew? Your, your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? He's kind of like, this is like a weird, odd thing to happen. Like what's, what's really the story here? Look what Jesus says, verse 36. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews, and he told them, look, I find no guilt in him. But you have this custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release for you this king of the Jews? But they cut him off and they cry out, no, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber, right? Pilate's trying to kind of like get him out of this situation. He's like, I don't really know what they're mad about, but I'm going to try to release him. They're saying, no, we don't want that. And look at chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. And Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Behold the man. That's my goal for us tonight. I want us to do what the text says. I want us to behold this man, Jesus, in these scenes. And I want to look at him, and I want us to like take this seriously. And so just picture that scene for a minute, kind of where you're at. Like Jesus standing in front of Pilate, Pilate pointing to him, crying out over the crowds, behold the man. Like just in your imagination, like look at his head. Look at the lines of blood that run down his legs. 
Look at his eyes, swollen and shut, bruised from repeated blows, probably encrusted in blood from the crown of thorns jammed onto his head. Look at his back. The, the whips that the Romans used, that the end of them had bone and glass shards. And so when you pulled it out, it kind of ripped out chunks of flesh and ribbons of skin with it. Look at him there wearing a purple robe in mockery, a crown of thorns jammed on his head. Look at his body beginning to shake uncontrollably from the shock to his nervous system and the lock of the loss of blood that is just beginning to set in. Behold the man. Just look at him. And then look what happens next. Verse 6. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. But the Jews answered him, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he's made himself to be the son of God. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. So he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? But Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. He's saying, look, you're like caught up in the middle of this. <laughs> like, I get it. The people who handed me over to you, these are the ones that's really going to come down on. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought out Jesus and he sat on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of the preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. Very interesting detail the story gives us. And every time there's a detail in the Bible, you should stop and pay attention. And some of it is just trying to give us the timeline, right? Like Jesus was arrested earlier that night, and it's kind of giving, okay, this is like now kind of during the, it's kind of giving us a timeline of when these things happened, but it's also a very specific time. So it's the day of preparation for the Passover at the sixth hour. And so what's happening this day is everybody's getting ready to celebrate the Passover. And at the sixth hour is the very specific time that all the lambs in Israel are being slaughtered for the Passover. So as Jesus is standing here, Pilate is pointing at him and saying, behold this man. In that very moment, the hills of Israel are ringing with the bleeding of thousands of lambs that are being slaughtered. And it's in this moment, he said to the Jews, behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered him, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called 
the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him. And with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. And Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. That's the story that John gives us. It's very short. It's to the point. And the reason it was probably short and to the point is because if you're reading this in the first century, even the word crucifixion would bring to mind like sights and sounds and smells. Like it was a very horrific thing that would be burned into the mind of everybody who heard that because you weren't a stranger to crucifixion. You, you walked by it. You saw it. It was a spectacle. And it was meant to mark the people who saw it. And so we don't have that experience, right? We don't live in the first century. We don't have the experience of watching a crucifixion. And so if we're going to understand that word, we, we actually need to understand what happens. And so I'm just going to do my best to just explain just what happens in crucifixion. And I'm not going to hold any punches, but just try to say it as it is. Crucifixion in the Roman world was reserved for truly the worst criminals. It wasn't a normal punishment. It was like a unique punishment that was designed as like a graphic and like hideous display of the vileness of the one on the cross. So it wasn't just like, hey, you did something wrong. It was like, no, we are going to try to point to how vile this person is by this horrific punishment. And many scholars consider crucifixion to be the most painful and horrific punishment humanity has ever conceived. It's actually from the word crucifixion that we get our word in English, excruciating. And during crucifixion, the body would be stripped naked, exposed for the humiliation of the crowd, but also just for the elements. Then they would have their naked body then thrown down onto the horizontal beam of the cross. And a group of soldiers would hold down each arm against the wooden beam while nine-inch-long nails were driven through the flesh of the arms, nailing the body to the cross. And it, a lot of people think that you would nail through the hands. Sometimes you've seen that. That's actually not what happened. Actually, if you put the nail through the hands, the weight of the body would be too much. And actually, the nail would rip through the soft flesh past the end of the fingers, and the person would fall off the cross. They tried that. It didn't work. And so because of this, the nail would be driven through the end of the wrists between the bone in the arms. And the placement of the nail, it's the one thing that could hold the body to the cross, but it's also right where the main median nerve runs through the arm to the hand. And so from the very first moment of crucifixion, you were in this like out-of-body excruciating pain because you were literally having the main nerve of your arm severed from the first moment of contact. And a nine-inch-long nail would pin one arm to the cross, and then they'd hold down your other arm, and they would nail down your other arm. And then they would grab your legs, and the legs were stronger, so it took more soldiers to hold you down. And then they would put pins through your ankles in the same way. And as the cross is lifted into the air, the weight of the body would bear down on those points. Iron pressing through flesh and nerve endings until it found the solidity of bone and in the end, the full weight of the body just being held up by the skeletal structure. And it's in this position of excruciating pain, death would not come quickly. It was not the point. 
The point was actually for death to come very slowly over hours and even days. You see, the cross wasn't designed to kill quickly. The cross was designed to torture, to humiliate, to desecrate the one who was on it. And to breathe in, the diaphragm must move down. This opens up and enlarges the chest cavity for air to enter in. Maybe some of you study like you know, the human body, and, and you know this, right? And to exhale, the diaphragm must rise up, which forces air out. And on the cross, the weight of the body, it pulls down on the diaphragm, keeping air in the lungs. And because of the position of the arms and the chest, in order to exhale, the body must be lifted up by the legs. And so what this means is in order to take a single breath of air on the cross, you would have to support the weight of your entire body on the nails going through your ankles. It's excruciatingly painful. Like, we don't have pain like this today. Excruciatingly painful. And that was just to take a single breath. But over time, as the legs weaken, because you can only do that for so long and you're up there for hours and hours, the full weight of the body would begin to actually pull down on the bones and the wrist. And under this weight, eventually the elbows would dislocate, followed by the shoulders, and the weight of the body would stretch the arm six to seven inches longer. And as the body deforms, the chest cavity drops, and each breath becomes more labored and only achieved through significant physical exertion and agonizing pain, And eventually, through this process, over hours and days, as the body is emptied of all strength and life, as the figure on the cross slowly becomes less and less recognizable as the body of a human being, the one on the cross would draw in one last breath with no ability to expel it from their lungs. So may I humbly suggest that if the cross of Jesus feels familiar to you, and if crucifixion feels like normal or, or routine or just known to us, like we've kind of talked about it, we, we wear a cross, we, we kind of have this as part of our life. If it feels familiar to us, then it's likely not because you're just so acquainted with it, but it feels familiar to us because we don't know anything about it at all. It's like a building you pass on the way to class, right? It's like you know it's there and you pass by it every day, and because of that, it feels so familiar, but actually it's familiar precisely because you only know it in the abstract. But you've never stopped and stared at it. You don't know the details of it. You don't know how many windows or even what the front door looks like. You just know it's kind of there, and because you pass by it all the time, you think you know it. It's familiar precisely because you only know it in the abstract, but it remains completely unknown to you. And listen, John doesn't want this to be familiar to you. He wants you to behold it. He wants you actually to stare at it until it changes you. And every gospel gives us a different vantage point when Jesus is on the cross. 
Jesus actually says a lot of things when he's on the cross, and every gospel kind of gives us a window into some of the things that he said, but John wants to end. The last thing he wants us to hear before the silence, two things. This is verse 28. It says, and after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. So that's the story. And there are some things we need to take away from it. And the first thing is this, the cross of Jesus, it teaches us about our sin. And this is so interesting, right? You come into church or you come into like a religious kind of Christian space and it's like people talk about sin. And actually it's interesting. It might be one of the things that you don't like talking about. And even coming here tonight, you were like, I bet they're going to talk about sin. (laughs) And the cross is actually the thing in the world that teaches us the most about our sin. And it's very interesting because religion says that if you want to be accepted by God, then you need to become a certain kind of person. It says you need to become actually the right kind of person. And what religion does is it gives you a path of how to become that kind of person. It gives you a set of commands. It gives you a philosophy of ethics, a set of prayers. It gives you a wisdom to follow. But the cross of Jesus Christ actually says something quite profound. It says you aren't the right kind of person. That's what it says. I mean, it's screaming it from so loud. You're not the right kind of person. But also what it's saying is that we are the kind of people who have actually earned for ourselves because of our lives, destruction and death. And more than that, the cross of Jesus is actually saying that no matter who you are, you can't change yourself into the right kind of person. And this is why just a few chapters earlier, John records Jesus saying something that's kind of like amazing. It's something so exclusive. It's actually one of the things people don't like about Jesus the most. This is what Jesus says in John 14, 6. He says, I am the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. And then he says something that's kind of crazy. He says this, no one comes to the Father except through me. And maybe you've heard that verse before. Maybe you just kind of know that's something that that Christians say, but like this is something Jesus is saying. He's saying, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we might ask, why does Jesus say that? And the answer is because of the cross. You see, what the cross is, is the cross of Jesus stands as a full and complete rebuke to every other spiritual path of enlightenment and salvation that masquerades in the world. The cross of Jesus screams out that every other religion is a fraud and every other path to God a counterfeit. And if you read the story of the Bible, you know that. Like, that's what the Bible claims. It's what Jesus claims, and it's what the cross is screaming. But why? Why does Jesus claim to be the only way to God? 
I mean, if you get to know Jesus, here's the thing you'll figure out. You're like, he's awesome. He's the dude you wanted a party. He's like so kind to everyone. He's just like this amazingly warm person, the most broken, sinful people that feel totally like cut off from all the religious spaces of the day. They find themselves totally attracted and drawn to Jesus, and Jesus pulls them in with no judgment at all. And yet at the same time, that same guy says, I am it. I'm the only way. I'm the only path. There is no other. Why does Jesus make such an exclusive claim like that? Because if you're in the room, you're like, there's a lot of paths out there, actually. Like, there's a lot of holy books. Like, there's a lot of religions. And who is to say that this one is better than all the others? It seems incredibly arrogant. It seems preposterous. It seems completely ridiculous. And if you're sitting in the room and you're a normal modern person, you hear Jesus say something like, I'm the only way, period. And you go, that seems a little bit arrogant, right? I mean, I've felt that before. And so why is Jesus claiming to be the only way to God? Why is he so exclusive? It's because God does not slaughter his son if you could be saved by following a certain set of rules. It's because God does not slaughter his son if you could be saved by at the end of your life having more good works than bad. And at the end, it's a scale and it's just, hey, if you, if you did more good than evil, you're good to go. You see, the reason is God does not slaughter his son if you could be saved through some other religious philosophy or way of, of life. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. God does not slaughter his son as one of the many ways that you could find spiritual healing and connection with God. Like, it doesn't make any sense at all that it's like, hey, you can pray these prayers and you can kind of live according to these rules or I could send my eternal son who's been with me from before time began. I could put him into the form of a human body. I could make him graspable and killable and I will let you grab hold of his body, shoot nails through his wrists and his legs and watch him bleed out and eventually die as one of the options for you. You see, God does not slaughter his son if there's any other way. You see, God the Father slaughters his son because without his perfect spotless sacrifice, without his blood being shed over your life, every single human being faces one sure and guaranteed end to their story. It's the only possible way for anyone to be saved. The fact that the cross exists as a path to salvation means it is the only path to salvation. And any other way of thinking about it means you haven't thought about it before. It's either everything else is true and Christianity is not, or Christianity is true and all the other paths are frauds. And Jesus, the man hanging on the cross, is saying, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And you cannot get to God through any other path but my blood. See, what the cross of Jesus tells us is that our sin is so much more serious than we could imagine. 
It's saying the corruption that we kind of we kind of agree to and admit that we're broken, but the cross is saying actually that brokenness it goes to the very core of who we are, and it means that we're actually irredeemable through systems or programs or philosophies and ideas. It means that the only solution, the only healing that's powerful enough to actually heal our souls is a healing that only Jesus Himself can purchase, and the only way He can purchase it is at the cost of His life. So the cross of Jesus, it teaches us about our sin, and it teaches us about our sin in the clearest way that it could. But it also teaches us about our Savior. And this is the most scandalous and incredible thing. Like, do you know what God is screaming to you in the silence of this moment as Jesus' body is hanging there on the tree? His silence, his his lifeless, crucified body is telling you that even though your sin is greater than you can bear, and even though if we're honest and God's honest, even when we're not, we have failed to be everything he's created us to be. And even though we deserve the cup of the wrath of God to wash over us and destroy us, despite all of those things being true, somehow when God looks at you, he sees something valuable to him. And that is stunning. Because let's be honest, if you stood up on the stage and every single lust-filled thought, every greedy, ambitious feeling you've had, every lie, every kind of one-night stand, the ones you most regret, every like perverse sex fantasy that you've indulged in but never told anyone about, if everything you've done that might be considered despicable or wrong was just laid out here for the world to see, I mean, you're up on stage and it's like every greedy thought, like every moment that you've wished the people next to you were worse than they are just so you'd feel better about yourself. Every single dark corner of your soul was laid bare and you were totally exposed up here. And a question was asked, who wants this one? I mean, who would say yes? And I'm telling you, if if I was up here, and my life, like the darkest corners of my life and my soul were laid bare, I'm telling you, it'd be overwhelming for me. And it would be overwhelming for you. Like, I only know one one one-hundredth of how messed up I am, but like the stuff that I know is unbearable to me. Like the selfishness, the greed, like the things I've thought and said, the things I would have done if I wasn't so scared to do them. Like there are things in me that are so horrific and broken. If I was just laid bare for all of you, it would be undoing to me and you would not even be able to look at me. And I'm pretty sure you're just like me. And so if you were up on the stage and everything dark, and broken about you is just exposed completely and totally. And a question went out over the crowd and over the world, who wants this one? Jesus would walk to the front and he would say, I want this one. I want this one. And in that moment, there'd be another voice that enters the conversation, and it would be the voice of reasonableness. And it would say, oh, Jesus, you don't understand. You you don't understand. Do you see who they've been with? Do you see what they've used their their eyes to look at? Do you see the way their, their heart and their mind has been degraded and deformed by their sin all these years? I mean, do you see the greed and pride? Like, do you see what it's done to their 
heart? Jesus, do you see how little of them is actually left? Yes. I see their past and I see their future. I see through every part of them. I know them better than they even know themselves. And I want them. Well, I'm so sorry, but this one's too far gone. What is the cost? No, Jesus, you don't understand. They deserve death. They're on death row. They can't be saved. It would cost too much. What is the cost? No, Jesus, you have to move on. There's just no possible way. What is the cost? You want to know the cost, Jesus? Fine. You would have to become exactly as they are. Not only as they are today, but you'd have to become the, the tortured future reality that they will become because of the sin that's grabbed hold of their life. You, you would have to become hollowed out and degraded and destroyed from the inside out. Your father would turn his back on you because you would be unworthy of his family. The one that you've always looked into his eyes from before time began, you would not see him anymore because he'd turn his face from you. It would cost you all your wealth. It would cost you your home. You would exchange your crown of glory for a crown of thorns. And they would jam it onto your head. You'd have to get off the throne that you've always sat on next to your father. And you'd have to get up on a cross. It would cost you everything. You'd have to drink the cup of God's wrath that's been stored up for them. And you would have to drink all of it every last drop, swallow it up in your body and soul. Jesus, you can't pay the cost. It's too much. It would cost you your life. You see, on the cross, as this man, Jesus, breathes his last, it is in the darkness and it's in the silence of that moment that we behold the most stunning and incomprehensible moment in the history of the world. That God, when he knew what it would cost to have you, that when Jesus knew the cost he would have to pay for your redemption and your salvation and your forgiveness, he said yes. He said yes. Like Jesus looked at what it would cost him to have you, not everyone, not other people, you. And he said, I'll do it. He said yes to the cross so he could save you. And listen, not because of you, but because of him. Because that is what God is like. That is what he is like. This is his heart. That is his love. If you want to know what God is like, the loudest and clearest place you can hear about him is here. It's in the silence and it's in the quiet as the Son of God no longer speaks, but as his body is lowered down from the cross and laid in the tomb. It says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, he asked Pilate that he might take the body of Jesus away, and Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. And Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came 
bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he had been crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So the cross of Jesus, it teaches us about our sin. It teaches us about our Savior, but it also demands a response. And this is interesting. Like One of the things Jesus says, right, he says, it is finished. He says, Jesus paid it all. It means there's nothing that you need to add. There's nothing you even could add to this. And listen, this is not religion. Like you, We have to understand this is not the path to the good life. No, this is the creator whose heart burns with love for his people, dying for them, paying the cost of their sins in full and complete. Jesus crying out, it is finished because it actually is. And when we see Jesus for the first moment in the gospel of John, John says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And now in the final moments of his life, John once again points to Jesus and says, behold, the man. So behold the man. When you look at Jesus on the cross, what do you see? I remember when I was a freshman in college at Iowa State, I was sitting in a gym listening to someone on stage talk about the cross of Jesus Christ. And I knew about the cross. Like I knew about it. It wasn't new information to me. I was raised in church. I knew the story. I even remember reading like little kids' Bibles about it from when I was like this tall. But there was a moment in my life where I stopped knowing the story and I simply looked at Jesus. There was this moment in my life where I stopped telling myself, I know this, it's familiar, I know the story, and I actually did what the story tells me to do and I beheld him. And in that moment of seeing Jesus on the cross, not dying for the sins of the world, but I recognized that he was dying for my sins, like my specific failures, like my greed, my ego, this thing that just goes to the depth of who I am, my, my addiction to pornography, my lying. And it wasn't abstract. It wasn't just a theological idea. It was personal. It was visceral. And it was powerful. I spent my entire life knowing intellectually that Jesus was the Savior of the world. But in that moment, as I beheld the man on the cross, hung up there by his wrists and his ankles, body shaking uncontrollably, elongated arms, head slumped over his chest, lungs heaving, trails of blood flowing down his limbs, staining the earth dark red. And in that moment, I saw him looking at me. And in that moment, I knew that Jesus wasn't just dying for the sins of the world, but he was dying for my sins. And he was on the cross because of the debt that I owed. And as I beheld this man on the cross, I came to the conclusion that there was nothing familiar about this scene at all. But instead, there had actually not been a single moment of my life where I'd ever even considered it honestly. I spent my whole life walking on the other side of the road. My entire life, I've been so inoculated by the familiarity of the scene, by convincing myself I knew it, I understood it, I knew what this was about, I'd never actually been able to comprehend it at all. 
And when I beheld Jesus for real, everything about my life changed. And I responded to Jesus in the only rational and logical way that you could respond to this. I laid down everything I had at his feet. And I just said, Jesus, take my life. It is yours, period. And I didn't do that to pay him back. I didn't do that to try to like gain favor with him. I did that because it felt like the only reasonable thing that I could do was to simply say, here, Jesus, take everything. If there's anything I can spend my life on that in some small, infinitesimally tiny way brings you some level of glory, I would spend every ounce of my life just to do that. Because I now love this man on the cross more than anything in the world. And it was in that moment of beholding Jesus that I realized that every single thing in the world I was looking for, finding it somewhere else, it was actually the very thing that I knew that felt familiar, that was always right next to me. That was the thing I'd always been looking for. There's a Scottish pastor who says it like this. He just says, God has laid Christ across the path of humanity on its course to the future. In the encounter with him, each person is changed one for salvation and one for destruction. One cannot simply step over Jesus to go on about the daily routines and pass him by to build a future. Whoever encounters him is inescapably changed through the encounter. Either one sees and becomes what the Bible calls a living stone or one stumbles as a blind person over Christ and comes to ruin. I said at the beginning that in the silence of this man hanging on a cross, we stand at the crossroads of reality, and I mean that. Do you understand the Bible's claim of who Jesus is and what was happening on the cross is so profound and weighty and beyond anything else that you're going to talk about in your life. It demands that we take an account of it and we respond to it. And there's multiple ways you can respond to Jesus, right? You can look at Jesus and you can just say like, I don't care. I don't believe. I don't think you were the son of God. I don't believe the story. I'm out. That's a total legitimate way you can respond to it. But what you can't do is say, this seems kind of important. And I want it to take up a corner of my life. That's insane. That makes no sense at all. That's like the most irrational thing you could do. But what you can do, what John, the one who wrote this, wants you to do is to behold him and to stare at Jesus on the cross long enough until it takes hold of your heart and takes hold of your life and doesn't just become a part of you, but actually becomes the central thing you're living for. That this man, Jesus Christ, who's the center of the new heavens and the new earth, actually becomes the center of your life. There is coming a day where every one of us will stand before this man face to face. Like, I'm, I'm telling you that's true. Not because it's what I think, it's because what the Bible says. 
you will stand before Jesus Christ face to face. And here's what is amazing. He will not ask you how many good things you did for people. He will not ask you how good your grades were and how hard you worked to make something of your life and your talents. He will not ask you how you think about the world. He will simply base his decision on whether he knows you or not. And those people who put their faith in Jesus Christ, who've came to him and said, Jesus, I believe on the cross you were dying for my sins. I give you my life. Those people Jesus knows. And those people he says, hey, my blood has been shed for you on your behalf. But if you come to Jesus with your goodness, you come with your accolades, you come with your resume, you come with your hard work, Jesus doesn't want that. He wants you to respond simply by putting your faith in him in such a real way that it takes hold of every corner of your life. And I want to pray for you that maybe you're in the room and the cross of Jesus has been familiar. I want to pray that tonight you'd actually be able to behold Jesus, maybe for the first time, and that by doing that, it might change your life.